You turn it. Two, we will read the chapter. Saying to this church, his object for them. When we talk about preaching, a word you hear a lot is application. It's because scripture is, is really designed. God intends for us to apply it. Paul wrote this to do something to the church at Thessalonica. What was he trying to do to them? Someone was standing up here reading this letter. What would it do? To us. What that means, if you, as we read, wrote all of these questions, well, you'll have to forgive me because I have a time limit. I can't answer all of those. This is full of questions. I hope I'll be able to answer some. If you want to text me and schedule lunch this week, maybe I can preach the other three quarters of the sermon over lunch. Let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Our text will be verses 6 through 12 but we'll read the whole thing. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him, our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts. You see there in verse 15, Paul's objective in dealing with this topic. He raises a bunch of things that leave us with questions, but what's his objective? Stand firm, hold hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by letter from us. Paul has taught them a great deal in person and later by writing to them. Don't abandon that. He's not actually in a theology class arguing about when the rapture happens. So we're not going to do that tonight because we don't have time. 
But what this relates to, just for a little bit of background, it relates to Daniel's prophecy. And uh, the prophet Daniel, if you read, if you go even tonight and read chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12, and get to the end of that, and it's recorded for us that Daniel was sick and he was troubled for many days. You might be too. Uh, because it's really a remarkable set of prophecies that throughout history have been fulfilled very specifically through very specific men and kings. But there's a lot of debate about this one thing. You may have heard of Daniel's 70 weeks, his 77s. And there's uh, a breakdown in that prophecy of there's two weeks or two sevens and then 60, or excuse me, seven sevens and then 62 sevens. But if you do the math, that just goes to 69. What about Daniel's 70th seven? That's the question. I believe that's what this is touching on. This is occurring in Daniel's 70th week. What if you, if we took all the time to trace it all the way out in scripture, we would call the great tribulation, a seven year period at the end of time right before Christ's millennial reign, a thousand-year reign on the earth, a seven-year period in the middle of which, you're doing the math, you didn't know you came to math class tonight, three and a half years, there's someone who will be revealed. He's referred to a number of times in scriptures by a number of names. Here he's called that lawless one, the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. He's exalting himself above every so-called God or object of worship. If you read Daniel, you see a very similar description that Paul is drawing from here. This is the Antichrist. Okay, If, if you're tracking all the way across all of Scripture, the names attributed to him. He's called the little horn, the king of fierce countenance, the prince that shall come the man of sin, the son of perdition, that wicked one, the beast out of the sea, the Antichrist, the Antichrist. Of course, the Apostle John says there are many Antichrists in the world, but this is the final one, the one. You could say capital, the, capital Antichrist. And if you're someone who believes, as we do here, that there will be a rapture of believers to heaven before the Great Tribulation, you might wonder, why would, why would Paul tell these people about a bunch of stuff they won't even be around for? You ever thought about that? It's a question that you have to answer when you come to a passage like this. If we're not going to be here for this, why does Paul tell us about this? Well, when you really understand why prophecies are given, you understand that sometimes prophecies about the future are really given to make you worship God. They're designed to tell you theology, things about God, and to exalt God. Sometimes they're designed to encourage believers about God's victory and God's control in the end. They're what some have called more inspirational. Sometimes they are transformational. They're designed to, designed to get you to conform to God's purposes and priorities. I believe that's part of what's going on here. You see a man of lawlessness meeting judgment in the end. Is there an implication about lawlessness for the Christian? Of course, there are ethical prophecies calling for repentance and the purity of the saints. There's just informational prophecies, ones that are designed to be reliable communication of events that are coming in the future. That's part of what's happening here. But Paul's addressing a deception. He's trying to give them confidence about what he's taught them. And I believe what he's saying is that all who refuse to obey the true gospel 
will meet perfect justice in the end. I think that's the message for us tonight. Everyone who refuses to obey the gospel, to believe the gospel, to love the truth, these are several phrases Paul uses, they will meet perfect justice in the end. You see that by the career of the Antichrist as he opposes God. You see it in him. You see it in all who follow him. The spirit is already at work in the world. And how does Paul demonstrate this? I believe it's by three uh, ways that seem like he has unlimited power. Starting in verse six, his appearance, this is where we're going tonight. He's going to be unleashed for a time. He's going to be given time to exercise authority, three and a half years. And that's unsettling to us. He's going to be unleashed. He's going to be unveiled. He's going to deceive many people. It's really going to work. It's going to happen. As Paul identifies the Antichrist, that too can be unsettling to us. But not just that Antichrist, but all who follow him, everything opposed to Christ, all Antichrists, they will triumph for a time. Wickedness will increase greatly in the world. But what Paul says every time, and what he's drawing their attention to, is that the Antichrist, all Antichrists in the world, will meet perfect justice in the end because they refused to obey the gospel. So I want you to see first in verses 6 and 7, Antichrist, the Antichrist, will meet perfect justice, even though he will be unleashed for a time. This is, Paul's talking about the revealing of him. Look in verse 6, you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed. He will be unveiled. He will be unleashed on the world for what he is and all his wickedness and all of his power. But what Paul is saying is that his unveiling will be impossible until God allows. Verse 6. You know what restrains him now, so that in this time he will be revealed. Paul, I don't know what restrains him now. What are you talking about? Well, apparently the Thessalonians did. We're not going to take the time to talk about all the ink that's been spilled over this. I believe this is God who is limiting the Antichrist. The devil wants to put the Antichrist on the throne to challenge God, and God will not let him until the time is right. I believe that's what Paul is saying. His unveiling will be impossible until God allows. What does this tell us? No one can force God's hand. Not even the devil. Not you. Not the Antichrist. Not the devil. I would argue that what you've seen throughout history is the devil trying to force God's hand. Why do you think all the Jews thought Hitler was the Antichrist? Probably with good reason. The devil would love to force God's hand. Do you think he's just waiting until God gives him permission? No, he's a rebel. But he can't. No one can force God's hand. This is the God that Paul is pointing them to. This is the God that you're entrusted to, Christian. God's judgment will come despite power and arrogance. That's what this man is. That's what his whole career is defined by. But God's going to judge him. God's limiting him, limiting the devil. But his unveiling, I think it's also clear, it will be timely 
not just because the devil made it up, but because of God's choice. You know what restrains him now so that in his time, in his time, he will be revealed. This may be, some have argued, this restraining influence is the influence of the Holy Spirit. There is a a litany of other things that people have argued, the Roman Empire, uh, the preaching of the gospel, the church, the, the human government, all sorts of things. And there are reasons I would disagree with those things. But you know what restrains him now so that in his time, he will be revealed in his own season. That that time period that will be dominated and characterized by the Antichrist. God has made his arrival, his unveiling on the scene of world history impossible until God intends to put him on the scene for the culmination of history. Just like God had a time that was ripe, the fullness of times, it says, to send the Messiah into the world and to explode the church across the whole world so too will God allow the Antichrist to rise to power and to be revealed at the exact right time. There's nothing anybody's going to be able to do about this. There's no election that you're going to be able to vote in that's going to thwart this. Think about that. But it's not going to be because the Antichrist is so shrewd or because the devil is so powerful. It's going to be because God is positioning him exactly where he wants him. But when he comes, it will be a time of terror. Tribulation, Jesus said, that comes upon the world like it has never seen, Matthew 24. And it's going to seem like he won't meet God's judgment. Because he'll be winning. This is what Daniel chapter 7 says, Revelation 11, Revelation 13. We'll turn to Revelation 13 in a few minutes. But the fact remains that God has appointed his arrival. Just as God has decreed the duration of his reign of terror, three and a half years, seven years, just as God has also secured his end. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Look for God's providence in the world. Express your faith to God. Ask that his will will be done because this too is part of God's will when the time comes. But Paul also said that this unveiling of the Antichrist, it'll be preceded by many of his same spirit. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Something about lawlessness that we wouldn't understand unless God revealed it to us. So what are we talking about this uh, here? Ask yourself this. Why is there such a thing in our country called Pride Month? Why that term? When the Bible clearly teaches that God hates pride, and he resists pride. Why is it that when you see these colorful flags, it's not just any combination of colors, it's the rainbow. The sign of God's promise that he would not destroy the earth. It's almost like there's someone behind it planning it. Don't you think? Would we know this if God did not reveal it? No, I don't believe we would. These are people who have no love for God's law, but they're really animated by the spirit of the age. And not just the age, but by the ruler of the prince of this world, aren't they? And this was all of us. We were all lawless until God saved us by his grace. Do you have a love for God's law? 
If you do, that's a good sign. What did David say? Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. This is, this is the heart of a Christian, that they love God's law. It's the heart of the devil to hate God's law, isn't it? The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Paul sees it playing out in front of his eyes. He's in a Roman city. Certainly we see it too. Only he who restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way. Paul called it a what that was restraining him. Now he calls it a he. That's what gives interpreters fits. I, I do believe it's God, the only thing powerful enough to restrain the devil. Cannot be anything human. Certainly has to be divine. But his unveiling is preceded by many of his spirits. And when we have to wait to see God judge, often we're weak, aren't we? That's part of the challenge of faith. We, we long for when faith will be made sight, but it's not sight right now. We have to wait for that. Nevertheless, Paul is saying, all who refuse to obey the true gospel will meet perfect justice in the end. God will unveil this man for a time, but only by God's choice, only for as long as God chooses. This man's reign will end in judgment. But it's not just his appearance that could be concerning. It's also the influence that Paul describes. He's going to have a lot of influence. Second, Antichrist will meet perfect justice, even though he will delude many for a time. Paul is identifying here and identifying him here. What is he going to be identified by? Verse 8, he'll be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Really, the most memorable part of the existence of the Antichrist is actually his pitiful end at Christ's glorious return. Isn't that an amazing thought? This is a statement about the timing of his appearance. Then that lawless one, after this influence is removed, after he's allowed to be unveiled, I believe at the midpoint of the great tribulation, when he's seating himself in the temple, what's the most notable thing about him? The one whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. God will bring that wretched man to a wretched end, is what Paul is saying. With the breath of his mouth. God created everything by the breath of his mouth. That's how powerful God is. When is this going to be? What's the timing of Christ's coming? That's the end of the Great Tribulation, when Christ comes to set up his kingdom for a thousand years. Christ's coming at that time, will be overshadowed by nothing. In the time of the Great Tribulation, there will be much praise given to the Antichrist, even to the devil himself, from the whole earth. But when Christ returns, all of that false praise is going to catch in everybody's throats. Because they'll see the sun in his glory and his splendor. And they'll recognize how incomparable these two are. You could say it would go on this man's tombstone. Exalted himself against God 
was shown to be a fraud. That's what's going to happen. He's setting himself up as God. And then when God comes in, that's it. His judgment is certain despite all of the manipulation and the corruption in the world. When you see these things, is that frustrating to you? Drain the swamp. You heard that phrase? Get those dirty politicians out there. We can get really worked up about this, can't we? And there's something to that. We want to see justice, but we don't always get to. Sometimes we have to wait for God's justice. Do you believe that he'll bring it? seems that the most memorable thing about him is that God's going to kill him. But the most distinctive aspect about his coming is really a, a sly and kind of counterfeiting alliance with Satan himself. His coming, verse 9, is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders and with all deception of wickedness. The coming of the Antichrist onto the scene will occur by the actions of of Satan, all of the circumstances surrounding him, his rise to power, his influence, even the the steps that he's taking and the activity he's engaging in, it will be under the influence of Satan in the world, certainly under God's permission, but guided and assisted by Satan himself. You remember from Ephesians 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, In the heavenly places, with this man, it will be specifically Satan. Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. But he will be with this man. But what will give him such recognition, what will be so distinctively satanic about him? It's actually that his coming out of the into the world, out of the world scene, will look a lot like Jesus' arrival onto the world scene. It's kind of shocking. The devil is a counterfeiter. He wants to operate like God. He wants to be God incarnate. He wants to animate a man and receive glory from that man and see a man do his will in the earth. He's setting himself up in the temple to be like God. But Satan's a copier. He's a fake. He's a deceiver. These these, uh, things that he's doing are miracles that the Antichrist is going to be able to do by the power of Satan. And all of these terms, it's significant. These are terms that are used of Jesus' miracles. Power, signs, false wonders. Of course, Jesus didn't do false wonders. He did wonders. This man will too. This, I believe that word false is referring to all of it. Not that he's just a magician. Okay, This isn't just going to be finding people with you know, oh, you, this your left leg is shorter than your right leg. I'm going to, you know, kind of make your right, your one leg longer. It's not going to be that. That's, we see that kind of stuff and it's foolish. This is going to be real miracles that he's doing. This word power, it really points to the, 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 the nature of what he's doing. It's miracles that'll display obvious Might over nature and over people. The word signs, it's miracles that are obviously pointing to something. John, the Gospel of John, talks a lot about the signs that Jesus did. And these were signs that pointed to the fact that he was the Messiah. 
you read the Gospel of John, look for that word sign that John uses instead of the word miracle. This this antichrist is going to be doing things that are pointing to the satanic nature of his empowerment, but he doesn't want people to think that. People aren't going to think that. They're going to think he's God. These are miracles with, I heard someone say, significance, right? False wonders, miracles that produce awe in people, miracles with effect on people. If you turn over to Revelation 13, if you think about miracles, maybe you think of the miracles that the the magicians and the the um, sorcerers did in Egypt when Moses was doing miracles, they could copy some of his. And maybe some people think that they, you know, it really was just a, a magic trick. But they could do certain things; they couldn't do others. God was certainly whatever else was certainly shown to be more powerful than the gods of Egypt. But look at Revelation thirteen. I believe this is referring to the same one. The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Obviously, lots of uh, symbolic language, but a very definite reference to what is going on here. Then I, John, saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems. On his heads were blasphemous names. So he's got some authority. The beast which I saw looked like this. The dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. I believe this is the devil giving the Antichrist all of this. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon. This is the devil, remember, who is empowering the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beasts. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? So what are they doing? What is Satan setting up here? Worshiping God and worshiping the sun. He's a, he's a fake. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given him. Is that three and a half years? Yes, it is. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Does that sound like power or a sign or a false wonder? A fatal wound? Is this an appearance of a resurrection from the dead? Does that sound familiar? Verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So it seems that somebody looked like they were dead and now they're alive. Maybe they really were dead. This is a resurrection. Is this the Messiah? 
And then there's some other prophet coming and saying, worship him. He's making fire come down out of heaven. This is God. This is a sly, counterfeiting alliance with Satan. And of all the things we can note about this, and there's a lot, recognize false wonders do exist. Uh, in a few verses, they make a statue, and the statue comes to life. Okay, Watch out. But also, if there are deceivers in the world today, they're just of their father, the devil, aren't they? He's a liar. He has been from the beginning. Don't be frustrated by that. Oppose it, but pity that. This is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness. And this is the sobering thing about his whole career, is the hardening influence he has on all unbelievers. You saw it in Revelation. You see it here. All the deception of wickedness for those who are perishing. Because, why are they perishing? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. This is as people persist in sin. You could look at Romans 1 here. God is judging them by giving them over to it. They are deceived in their sin. They are deceived by their sin. This is what happens with idolatry. Look at Isaiah 44. So this is a statement about the Antichrist, but also about those who follow him. This deception is only effective on those who don't believe in Christ. And I would say to you, don't tinker with unbelief. Don't toy with it. God may choose to harden you in your choice. The devil will delude many through his false messiah. And that could be frightening. This is a grim picture. Yet the message is, all who will not repent of sin and believe in Christ will meet eternal hellfire. This man will be unleashed in God's timing. He will deceive many. But Paul really broadens out beyond just the man. All that is opposed to Christ will meet perfect justice, even though wickedness, for a time, will triumph. They did not receive the love of the truth, so they perish. For this reason, in a further way, God will send upon them a deluding influence or the activity of error you may have in the margin so that they will believe the lie, literally. I believe that may even refer to the fact that this one is God. Not just generally what is false, but that lie in particular. In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness. Here we're talking about those who refuse to love the truth. You see that in verse 10. They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. This receives eternal condemnation. This is God's just punishment. Do you love the truth? Not just to, to be right, but because you love the truth of the gospel, because you love Jesus, who is the truth. Do you love the truth? 
but refusing not just to love the truth. I think you could also, if I could make this distinction, refusing to believe the truth brings God's, maybe you could call this hardening. Definitely you could call this God's judicial turning over to lies. They didn't believe the truth. They wouldn't believe that Jesus is the true Messiah, the Son of God. They heard it. Maybe they heard that he had died for sinners and that he is Lord and you must believe in him for salvation. But they would not rely on that for themselves. Maybe they wouldn't even admit that was true. God gave them instead of the truth. God gave them a lie instead. If you don't think this happens, do you remember what the prophet Micaiah told Jehoshaphat and Ahab? I saw in the presence of the Lord. And a spirit came up and said, I will, I know what to do. I'm going to go deceive Ahab. I'm going to put a lying spirit in the mouths of his prophets and tell him he's allowed to go up and he'll be fine. And the prophet's standing there hearing Micaiah say this and says, how did the spirit of God jump from me to you, you to me? You're lying. He smacks him on the mouth, tells him to be quiet. And Micaiah says, if Ahab comes back alive, I'm not the real prophet. God allowed that spirit to go and deceive Ahab through a false prophet. God gave him a lie. He didn't want to hear the truth. He didn't want to believe the truth. God let him believe a lie. These signs, if you glance back at Revelation 13, it's interesting to note this kind of language in the book of Revelation. Revelation 13 and verse 14. He deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform. Maybe the devil gives him this to perform. But if you actually trace that language out, there's often this unexplained phrase of it was given. It was given. It was given. And as you read the book of Revelation, if you read between the lines, you realize God was giving. God was giving. God was giving. God is granting that this one would go and unleash this judgment on the earth. God was granting that this person could do this. God may allow this person to do this, to judge those who do not want to believe. And maybe the lie is that the devil can actually resurrect someone from the dead because the devil wants to be like God. So if you think lies have no impact on you, think again. I would say again, do not flirt with error. We really need to sharpen our minds on the truth so that we can spot error when we see it. Of course, these ones are also those who take pleasure in wickedness. They too will meet God's judgment. Do you believe that God will certainly judge in the end? There is much in the world today, right now, that would indicate otherwise. Certainly there will be in the end. But if we keep our eyes on that, we're going we're gonna to stumble because our, our faith, probably because our faith is weak, probably because we don't believe it enough that God really will judge it. But truly, 
All who refuse to obey the true gospel will meet perfect justice in the end. How do we know this? Jesus Christ is alive. He's coming again. He said uh, he did not come into the world to condemn the world. You could say the first time. What happens when he's coming the second time? It is in judgment. He is Lord. He is the king of all kings. And all men will bow the knee to him in heaven and on earth. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, they will either do it in thankfulness and joy and worship and gratitude, or they will do it in fear and regret and terror because they are under the wrath of God. Paul uses that phrase, those who are perishing. This isn't just perishing in ignorance. This is perishing in rebellion. The time to decide your eternal fate is actually in time. Because once you do perish physically, that's it. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus is alive. He did die for sins to rescue people from it, but he was raised and he was seated in heaven. This ought to be the object of our focus in the world. May God help us while God leaves us here to believe him, but also to have compassion for sinners, to win them for Christ, because this is coming for them just as it was coming for you and me. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. God, it is a sobering thing to see pictures, windows into your fierce judgment on the earth. And we see wickedness abounding in our days, and we wonder if you will soon return. Lord, help us to be watchful, but help us to be uh, zealous and fervent uh, with the gospel, because that's the only hope for anyone. Uh, including us, that we can be right with you through Christ. Thank you for making a way so that we could be in fellowship with you. This is the most important message that uh, men and women can hear. Help us to be faithful with it. Give us opportunities, even this week, to proclaim the gospel, because judgment is certainly coming, no matter what men say, and no matter how things look in the world. We love you, Lord. Um, thank you for time in the word. Blessed to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.